there are times when I almost peed my pants because like my, I'm just like so focused on the work and I'm like doing this and crossing my legs and don't even realize it. And then I'm like, oh man, I'm like, I really have to, I can't get out of my chair because I don't want to pee my pants while I'm trying to go to the bathroom. Like, you need the bladder, um, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep going. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Clint Hawking, who started his career as a game designer on the first Splinter Cell and was also creative director of Splinter Cell, Chaos Theory, and Far Cry 2. Uh, all right, so usually what I start off with is... Um, like what's the very what's the very first video game that you remember? The very first video game that I remember, man. Uh, I think it was Space Invaders. Wait, like in the arcade? Well, I think there was a, a Space Invaders like yeah arcade machine in like a grocery store. Where would this be? In like in Ontario, where I was born when I was a kid, I would have been six or seven, maybe. Yeah. So yeah, I remember. I don't even remember if I ever got to play it. I just remember like watching it, looking at it, and like you know moving the stick and pressing the button. But you know it's in, right. like it's demo loop or whatever, and yeah. and you know my mom's like, "We're not putting any money in that thing." Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think probably it was Space Invaders. I don't remember if I ever got to play it though. Like then, I have, I have of course since played Space Invaders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Sp- sp- wait, Space Invaders is the one with the three like. Like defensive barriers, right? Right. Yeah, I think yeah, so. That was it? Yeah. And you go back and forth, and yeah. there's the like four by eight. Yeah. Whatever it is, you can shoot aliens. little holes in your own barrier and shoot through the. Yeah. Yeah. It was space invaders. Yeah. So were you like? Uh, <clears throat> did it stand out to you as like something that? You I mean, it was seen the before? first video game anybody'd ever seen, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah. Really, I mean, with very few exceptions. Like, yeah, it was like, holy cow, what's that thing? It's like TV that you can use. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you end up playing arcade games then, or was um, it like was that even possible? Because back then it's just a question of whether whether you, you had can find quarters. the quarters yeah, or whatever exactly. it is in Canada. I don't ever really remember playing arcade games until probably a few years later. Probably I was like probably I was like nine or ten, and it would be like you know Pac Man and Centipede and, and stuff like that. Like at that point, I probably did play Space Invaders. Like I remember. I remember as a kid, after I'd moved to Vancouver with my mom, we would go over on the on the ferry across to Vancouver Island to visit my my great my mom's aunt, my great aunt, and you know back then ferries they'd have like a little arcade with you know seven or eight machines in there, and this is when you know Pac Man and Defender and when Zaxxon was new, right? Right. And I remember, uh, yeah. So I remember, and you know, because it's like a four hour <laughs> ferry trip <laughs> when I was yeah probably like nine or ten. Um, across to Vancouver Island to visit my mom's aunt, my great aunt. They'd have like, you know, six or eight machines on the ferry. And the ferry was like, you know, four hours long or something. It was a long ride. So my mom would give me like two bucks in quarters or something. And that was... Oh, right, because they would have had machines on the boat. Yeah, probably not. Maybe they did. I don't know. But I remember it was like there was a pretty, you know, we didn't have much money. So it was a pretty tight budget. Like there's your two bucks. You got to make that last for the whole, you know, three and a half hours or whatever. So which games did you play? 
whatever they had, you know, I remember yeah, playing, I remember, what was the pole, what was the one, before, the racing game before pole was like Turbo? I think Turbo. I remember a game like that. Is that the top-down one? No, it was the first. I think I think pole position was the first one that had uh, like like parallax and like uh, or not parallax. Oh well, yeah, parallax on the sides, but like converging the vanishing lines. point. I think, but I th- yeah, vanishing point. But I think pole position was uh, was still like a view behind the car. But I think it just went. I can't remember exactly. I can't remember. Or not pole position turbo. I think I remember turbo, turbo being the one, or I remember there being a game where you look down at a track yeah. on the top, and essentially you look like you know those those uh, toys where you have the cars on like the electric rail. And yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was kind of like that. Yeah, was that, that was no. It was it wasn't that one. It was okay. definitely like the precursor. The it was the, really the first like like third person racing, right? Yeah. Um, and there was that. There was. Uh, I mean, it was the classic arcade games. Yeah, it was Pac-Man, Centipede, like, um, Turbo or Pole Position. Uh, uh, what else? Dig Dug. I like Dig Dug. Yeah, Dig Dug's, Dig Dug's a hard fucking game, man. Yeah. I've, like, played it again recently, and it's, like, it's really hard. <laughs> a lot of those games were really hard, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those classic games. And then I still remember... Another one I really remember, I was probably... Probably 12 by this time, maybe... I think it was like, I think we were on, vac- my mom took me down to like, whatever, San Diego or something for a vacation one summer. And we went to some, you know, sea land or adventure play thing or whatever. And there was like a big roller coasters and all that shit. And they had like a video arcade. And I remember that was the first time I'd heard about Dragon's Lair. And okay. I'd seen oh, it on TV, yeah. but I didn't know. Like, I was just like, in my mind, it was like... Like how how many buttons must that game have? It yeah. must have like a jump button and a dodge button and like maybe there's two joysticks so you can like and then there's a sword button and a block button and like how, how man it must be so hard right? I, I mean I was imagining a fully simulated like cel yeah. yeah. <laughs> shaded game right and then I saw it it was like a joystick with one button and then I was like what I don't understand and then tried to play it and I, you know immediately got wasted because it's so bizarre yeah and. Uh, yeah, didn't didn't like it from day one just because I was like, oh, this game's just frustrating. <laughs> yeah, Dragon's Lair was a really bizarre game because for sure that was the game that like when you saw it, you just like you started imagining all these crazy games like yeah. that could be possible and uh, and I mean it, the technology was it was literally just like a laser disc yeah. inside of an arcade cabinet yeah. and it's just branching like, cutscenes. Yeah, it was like the basically it's the worst game of that era. Like <laughs> yeah. it was really terrible. But yeah. the problem was at that age. Like, I couldn't afford the quarters to, like, actually figure out how to play the game. Yeah. So, it was just a whole bunch of, like, sort of disappointing experiences with it. Yeah. But I think I was too young to be critical of it at yeah. that time. It was still like, wow, what the heck is this thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then it was, after that, it was, like, Gauntlet, which was, like, probably the first video game that became a money sink for me. Like, mm-hmm. all of my allowance being burnt up by Gauntlet. Would you play that with friends? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a great. And then uh, and then one great great experience was I think it was Rygar. Is that the game where you like throw some kind of blade on a chain or something? It's like a side scroller. It's a, scr- it's a brawler basically, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they had it at this corner store by our house, and like the the glass face on the on the cabinet had mm-hmm. like come unstuck or broken, so you could slide the glass face up and you'd reach down into the. <laughs> Into the box. So, so of course, yourself. at first we reach down and pull out twenty quarters, yeah. and then we play twenty games in a row, continuing, yeah. continuing, continuing, and then we're like, you go back in and reach out and pull them, feed yeah. them all back in, and then we're like, 
wait a minute, we can just take all of this money. Right. <laughs> we, only yeah, need one for, we only need to save one <laughs> to be able to play forever. And then we spent all the money that was in the box on chips and gum. Yeah, that's, and, uh, that's, uh, it's hilarious that your first instinct is not like, oh, free money. It's, yeah. Oh, we can, we can we play can this play game, game as much forever. as we want to. Yeah, yeah my, my most positive uh, arcade experience was that we had the, an arcade in, in, our home t- in my, my town I grew up in where for birthdays you just you could like rent it out for the whole night and then like they turn off the whatever the quarters yeah, right yeah. so everything was free play right and like that was amazing that's amazing yeah and like anything beyond that was like i i just couldn't it was just too frustrating to play yeah like in that type of like economic model or whatever if you're a kid yeah you know? those games were really like really sucked quarters out of you fast it was really really rough yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it was like the, the revelation of first seeing the first type of consoles that came out where it's like, okay, this is crappy, but like, wow, I can just play this as much as I want to. Yeah. Like, did you, did you have anything at home or? I never had a console, um, but I got a, when I was about, I mean, probably in like 86, I guess, is when that all happened. I mm-hmm. blogged about it once. Um, the VIC-20 came out. Yep. And uh, which was by no stretch of great machine but um it came out and my mom got me a vic 20 because she didn't mm-hmm. want to get me a console because it's like i don't want you to just have a thing for playing games like i sure. want you to be able to like learn to program yep. and like you know do word processing and balance <laughs> the checkbook and all of that yep, stuff yep. right that's how they were sold yeah. yeah and so uh so yeah she got it she got me a vic 20 and i remember i still remember and you games. were how old i was would have been it would have been 86 so i would have been 13 14 okay and uh, I only had a couple of games, but one of them was, and they were cartridges, right? And yeah. I remember they were 80 bucks. I remember even in 1986, a video game was 80 bucks. Um, video game cartridge that you plugged into a VIC-20. And the VIC-20 was like, you know, $249 or something, or $199 or something. So like the game was half the price of the console, right? Right. Or the, of the computer. But uh, yeah, so the, the I, had a, I had, I think I had like Choplifter. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple others I don't really remember uh, but really I, I think I only had like three games maybe but one of them was Load Runner and Load Runner was awesome because oh uh, that was a great game yeah because it had a level editor yeah. so like there's you know there's 140 levels in the game or something and then you can open the level editor and it's super easy right it's just it's just like it's just fucking MS Paint right you just mm-hmm. take the things and you paint your level and uh, and then you can play it and it was you know it was really good um and I and then you you had to save levels. There was like a separate cassette drive that oh you could God. buy. So yeah, I had yeah. a cassette drive, and I could save the levels on cassette tape. And of course, you had to like, you know, a level was only like three ticks of the tape counter. Like the levels mm-hmm. weren't very big. The footprint was really small. But you had to like know where it you was. know this level that level that I made is like between you know one forty two and one forty five. So you'd like write down the address of the of the of the analog like counter. The, Oh, these like feet of tape, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Or inches of tape or whatever yeah. it is. And so, and so, yeah, if you wanted to load that level, you'd have to like put in load runner and like put in the thing and like fast forward it to like 142 and like load from tape or whatever. And then it would, you know, load the thing. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a really bizarre, like very analog process. Right. And then, yeah, you could play your level. It was really cool. Wow. Yeah. I missed out on tapes. We had a conversation for, and we just had this drive. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, yeah. Tape using using tapes to record always just seemed like crazy to me. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah. Wow. Did you have uh, Did you have friends that would play? I had a couple friends. Yeah. Yeah. It was you know, um, it's always super hard to like have friends. Like there wasn't, or at least I didn't have any multiplayer games, so it yeah. was always like 
I mean, I guess would, you, would they like would they like play your levels like that? Yeah, kind of yeah, thing, yeah. Or? I had friends that would play my levels, but mostly it was like you know it was it's a process, right? Like you could play the same, you could play that level, and you could play it again and again. You want to load a different level, you have to like exit out and like reload and all of that. So it's yeah. just better to play the game. But then again, when a couple of thirteen-year-old kids, they don't want to take turns. They're not we're not very good at taking turns, <laughs> and like then you just get frustrated with your friends and you want to do something else. So so yeah, I mean, I had a couple other friends who you know I had a friends who had like a Coleco vision or something like that. So we'd go over there and play that. Um, yeah. And I had friends with like Intellivision. So we'd play it was the naval battle game they had for the Intellivision. I can't remember. It was really, really cool though. When sea you were, command or something. Yeah. When, so when you were making levels for, for load runner, were you, was it like you kind of run out of the game and that was just something else to do with the game or yeah. did it, was it like, you really felt like this was a fun thing to create. No, I, I, I loved it. I thought it was really fun. Like I had all kinds of different, you know, sometimes I would think of a level and like have a plan and try to build the level that I was imagining and like what it's sort of, what it looked like. Was it a, was I robbing a bank or was it like a skyscraper or was it an underground military base? Um, and then sometimes I would just kind of like make some random, random shit and then try to make try to impose some kind of structure out of the noise. So it was because it's so, I mean, I built hundreds of levels, right? Right. Um, I'm trying to remember, like, did there, was there different art or were like all the blocks basically the all same? All the blocks were the same, yeah. So like most of the, so you were building a narrative in your head and then just doing your best to yeah. make it match that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was all kinds of uh, different approaches to building levels that I, some of them I like better than others. And yeah, you know, you make a level out of your name or make a level out of your mom's name and show her and she didn't right, care. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't understand. Yeah. Would you, would you play your own levels? Or oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. I play, I mean, I played the game for hundreds of hours probably. I loved it. It's great. Right. It's a really you, good game. Do you have those levels? No, I don't think so. It's possible that there's some dusty old box at my mom's house somewhere, but I'm not sure if tape soon survives that long. Yeah. It's possible that they're, that they're just dust. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it, it's amazing to think of like how much effort because I um, I didn't make a lot of load runner stuff, um, but I did stuff with like pinball construction set, yeah, and yeah. adventure construction set, and like there was a whole kind of wave of games back mm -hmm. in the mid '80s that were built around creativity, which I think was awesome at the time. It was really incredible that the developers were thinking like that. Well, at the same time, there was like no way to share that stuff with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It was kind of bizarre it's weird when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Like in the '90s, there was actually a way to share it, but, but it wasn't like, really well. I, but really... but in the in the '90s, you had like, like the, you know Unreal Doom and stuff and like that. Like, yeah, you know, stuff like that to do. Yeah. So there was stuff like that, but there weren't. But these were actual like commercial software that it was called like blank construction set. Yeah, like, this was yeah. the point. You yeah, know? Um, and it kind of took a while for that to to happen again. So yeah. it's kind of like this weird forgotten period of time yeah where... it's, hard. it's it, like when i think about you know pinball construction set like my brain doesn't even my brain just assumes that you would then share those levels over the internet with yeah. your friends and they would play them and yeah. whatever and there'd be a website where you download thousands of people's pinballs but no that just didn't ex like not only didn't exist no one had even imagined it yet yeah, like... yeah. <laughs> it's like building this thing for this technology that is not there yeah. yet um, and it's actually, I mean, it's still a good idea. Like, it's yeah. actually kind of like someone should make a game like that now. Yeah, <laughs> there probably is somewhere, but yeah, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there's probably a bunch of pinball construction set games on Steam. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, so, 
what what else were you doing it like when you were a kid like how did video games fit into your life as a whole like was it a big passion of yours or was it just you know one of those kind of things you do because you're a kid and you um, have lots of time yeah i mean i was always kind of like you know like i said we didn't have much money so like i got that vic 20 like i think i think i got the vic 20 on the year the same year that the commodore 64 came out and i got it because right. it was like you know, my mom was pretty poor and it was like clearing yeah. out the Vic 20s to make room for the Christmas stock for the C64, right? So she right. probably got it at a really steep discount, you know, and, uh, you know, I never had a console. I, my first console was an Xbox. I, ne I literally wow. never owned a console until okay. an Xbox. It was always kids that I knew that had the Colecos or the Intellivisions and, mm -hmm. and, you know, going through high school, I had, um, after I'd kind of outgrown the Vic 20 and it had become kind of obsolete. Um, I had friends with, uh, you know, I had a friend with an Apple II, and we'd go over yep. to his place and like, like play, uh, play Ultima. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we'd go every day after school, go to his place, and you know, figuring out Ultima. Which, which right? Ultima would it be? Ultima Four, I think, was the okay. one we played. Um, <clears throat> you and you know, we didn't know anything about it. Like, right. it's like, how do you, how do you cast this spell? Like, we can't find the, the an ingredient that we need. Someone's talking about this ingredient. You're walking around randomly yeah. talking to people, and some dude in some village somewhere tells you about nightshade and where you can find it. Kind yeah. of, yeah. and like, there's no internet to look this shit yeah. up on. You just have to like <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, that that world is gone. You know, yeah. like you'll never be able to play games like that again. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. Did you did you guys make it through that game? Oh yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, on your own without. Yeah, help from. Oh yeah, and like made, we built out all our own notes and like had you know figured out what all the spells were by ourselves and like had all of our like notebooks with like what all the ingredients are and all the spells and like even I remember I I recently played not that recently within the last few years I played Ultima Four again and um, discovered weird stuff like like some people will tell you like the wrong recipes for spells. Hmm. So like you'll put you know three of two of one ingredient in there that you only need to put one in, and then right. if you find some other dude somewhere randomly, he'll tell you ah the common recipe for such and such spell it has one too many of these, but like right and you know stuff like that we didn't figure out. So we were you know like wow. it's it's you know it's really cool. Yeah. Um, well, that's I mean it's an accomplishment to make it through a game like that. Yeah. To, without any help. Yeah. Uh, back then. Yeah, I mean there was stuff that I remember. There are some dungeons in that game too that are really like intentionally confusing and mm -hmm. like that kind of like fold in on themselves and like really weird. Like the level design is pretty abstract, but like mm -hmm. it's really easy to get lost. And I think if I remember right, like the dungeons connect to one another from mm -hmm. their lowest levels, so you end up coming out in different places in the world. Like oh, really? some of that shit is really that. cryptic and hard to figure out. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember us having a really hard time with some of those things. And I remember us getting through the game, and in some places not understanding how we even did it. How we even did it. Yeah. And that's you know. And so we would play again, and and you know, try. You know, is it all? Is it you know? This I remember the second time we played. It's like, is it going to be the same characters, or do we find different characters? We should try to find a different guy to be our paladin instead of that guy or whatever. But it's you know, it's always the same characters. But you don't know that. Right. When you're playing for the first time, you're just like, I guess anybody could be in your party if you have the right, you know, configuration. I mean, you can't, but, but yeah, you, you, know, you speculate about all the stuff that's actually there, and yeah, I mean, that game was that game was amazing. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Were you affected by the because when people worry about Ultima Four now, what they usually talk about is how you know he was kind of like 
trying to change the concept of what an RPG was. Like, right. it should be, you know, it should be about the virtues and yeah. like there was a morality system. Yeah. And like, was that, did that make an impact on you? I mean, we thought it was cool, but we didn't have anything to compare it with. So we didn't was have any idea. RPG? Yeah, it was my first RPG. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. interesting way to so, do yeah. it, right? Yeah. So yeah, we didn't have any, anything to compare it to or any sense that like, that that wasn't the way to do it. And right. You didn't see what it was a reaction toward, against. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I remember, you know, that same guy, his name was Dave. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up, I guess, probably the next year or the year after. Not when we were in elementary school or high school. Would have been, yeah, it would have been like elementary school we started. And then in high school we started... We joined like the D and D group, and right. I didn't even know what D and D was, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was just like I'd heard about heard about it on TV, right? Right. Evil kids, so Satanism, yeah, yeah, Satanists, and I was like, well, I don't believe it's that. So we like joined this D and D club at our school, and we, you know, we got put in a group with you know some older guys that we didn't know, and and like these guys are still my friends today, right? Like, yeah. You know, I was in yeah. grade eight and met a couple of guys in grade ten who who were cool enough to not think that you're just supposed to beat up kids who are two <laughs> years younger than you. Yeah. And we, we played, uh, you know, role-playing games with them until like, I was literally gaming with them in, until 2010 or 2000 when I like left, right. left Vancouver to move to, to gaming, you mean literally D and D or just whatever. D you were well, doing. we, we switched eventually. I mean, yeah, that's a whole long story, but anyways, the point was like, you know, sure, when we were in grade eight, our, our role-playing was pretty hack-and-slashy. Mm -hmm. But even then, very quickly, like, we had friends who were way more into, you know, really interesting and elaborate stories. And, you know, you'd play entire... Would they make up their own? Or oh, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't use modules at all. Okay. Um, um, so, yeah, we had friends who would make up really elaborate stories and fantasy worlds. And we'd play entire, you know, an entire Saturday night from whatever, five o'clock until midnight. And we... We wouldn't even roll it. Well, we rolled it. We wouldn't even get. We wouldn't kill a monster. Like it was just like talking right. to people and like solving mysteries and you know going yeah. places and and so like our role playing got pretty sophisticated. I would say from a pretty young age. I mean, yeah. I don't really know. Um, and so well, yeah, like yeah, it's interesting to think about that this time how kind of like misunderstood the D and D or you know video games in general was because you know you're describing all these things are really are intensely social activities for yeah. you at that age. And, you know, yeah. like, it's, I've heard this often, and people going through a game like Ultima 4, it's not just them. It was like, yeah, me and the guy down the street. Yeah. And, like, I mean, that's the way to solve a game like that, right? Yeah, because yeah. It's oh, yeah, hard, you need help, yeah. You know, and, like, one guy plays it, the other guy's taking notes. And, like, a lot of people played adventure games that way, mm -hmm. you know, and, like, that's, that was, like, a key part of gaming back then. Yeah, and, you know, like, like, so, yeah, it's, like, this past year, I decided that I wanted to like make us like because my my son. I mean, he's only he's, he's not even five yet. It'll be five in a couple of weeks. Um, he's he's very very narrative. Like he'll wake up in the morning and walk in circles around our bed, telling himself stories about you know characters that from stories that we've read to him, or you know little you know movies that he's seen, or like and just making up these really elaborate and complicated stories for for like hours just right. talk, talking out loud telling the story out loud um uh -huh. and uh and i was like well i want to have you know he's four so the the stories are very um very unstructured and random mm -hmm. um so i was like well I, I think i should i think since he has this constant need to be creating this stuff like rather than just giving him more books and like mm -hmm. having him get other parts i should so I decided to make a role-playing game for him that was supposed to be kind of a simpler version of sure. D&D &D or GURPS or something like that. And 
because I'm a bad designer, it ended up being a more complicated version of D and D or GURPS. <laughs> but uh, but anyways, I made these rules and uh, I made this set of rules and um, like and, a fantasy type role playing. Well, game I, I, I tried to build it to be generic, right? Yeah, okay. Um, but then I then I threw a fantasy skin on it just to to give it some structure mm. um, because the goal was to kind of like facilitate him and I having improvised story play. Um, that is that has structure. Right. right. The goal was to use game rules to bring structure to his imaginative narrative play, so that to give him tools to scaffold like his his imagination and stuff. So we started playing that a bunch, and and yeah, again, it was. I mean, sure, sometimes we fight some skeletons or or some zombies or whatever, or some orcs or whatever. Um, uh, but really, like a lot of the play is about you know just trying to you know he. he he wanted to him in this NPC, so I play this other character called Michael. Mm-hmm. It's like this town, the son of like the innkeeper in the town that travels with his character, and so right. that he has someone to. It's and it's interesting how even at four, he's able to, he's able to talk to like he's already got the skill of he's able to talk to me as Michael and able to talk to me as Dad and able to talk to me as the Different. referee. Right, and like his brain is he's just partitioned it like so he doesn't get confused he just knows and i and i know how to read who he's talking to when he addresses these different personas that are on the table which is amazing right like you just take it for granted but like he's four right right right. uh and then you know and a big part of the play is like okay like you want to get to that shrine that's on the island in the middle of the river but the water's moving really fast like what are you guys going to do and he's like you know, he's like, well, I'm going to take my axe and I'm going to cut down a tree and then we'll we'll go across. The, I mean, this is four, right? And he's yep. making this plan. Okay, so we cut down a tree and I've got the, you know, I've got the battle mat and I've got it drawn out. And I, okay, well, that's how long the tree is. And you guys chop down the tree and it falls in the water and then it starts to, move it floats down the river. The tree's not long enough. What are you going to do? And, and it's like, okay, well, and his, you know, his character doesn't know how to swim. But so maybe maybe you can tie the rope around Michael and Michael can swim across and tie the rope and then he can pull you across or something. So they have to like troubleshoot all. And he's like, I want to build a catapult. And he's like, we want to get the (laughs) rope and we're going to pull the tree down and then we're going to. And I'm like, okay. And then, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to get on the tree. And like, and I'm like, and and Michael suggests maybe we should put some rocks on the tree and see if they go far enough before we go on the tree. And he's like, okay. And then, you know, we put some, they go sploosh like 10 feet into the water. It's like, oh, that's not going to work. So like trying to you know come up with and then you know roll some dice to see how this or this or did you have a solution in mind when you put him in that situation no no and they ended up kind of using this hybrid solution it was funny because um uh it's funny because at the same time he'd had this book this kid's book it's a it's a french book it's about a little gorilla that's trying to open a coconut okay and he goes to you know, he's trying to open the coconut and the elephant's like, I can crush it with my, my big yeah. foot or whatever. And he's like, no, I want to do it. And then the crocodile's like, I can bite it open with my teeth. And he's like, no, I want to do it. And then he talks, you know, and all the different animals like have a way, way that they can open it for yeah. him. And he's like, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. In the end, he ends up like, you know, taking a bunch of like sharp stones and like making kind of like alligator jaws out of sharp stones and tree branches and like climbing up into a tree like and jumping on it mm-hmm. like he ends up using different pieces from what from all the animals thing, said yeah. um and so after we got through his experience I, like i think in the end he chopped down a tree and like like um then michael in michael they went out on the tree together and then michael swam across and then pulled him or something like that was like how he did it um uh so yeah like his solution was just taking the different bits and pieces and sticking them together and then i 
you know, we'll talk to him about, about, oh, you remember how the little gorilla did, did this mm-hmm. and that. And then we went and read the book again. And like, so yeah, I mean, it's all bringing all of those things together. But yeah, the point was, it was like, you know, focusing on the creative part of the play and the social part of the play more than just on the chopping up works kind of stuff, which right. happens too. But whatever. yeah, yeah. Did you... Did you DM games back then? Yeah, yeah, for a long so, time, yeah. Were you the primary DM? No, we, we actually worked out a pretty good thing in, you know, sort of post high school, which was like, we would run these sort of mini campaigns mm-hmm. um, that would be, you know, six or eight episodes, long, six or eight weeks long. Mm-hmm. And so one guy would do that for six weeks. And then, you know, after that, another guy would do it for six weeks and then another guy for five and another guy for seven so that we were kind of splitting up the work right right because he obviously like when you're doing these sort of much more elaborate narrative focused things they also uh narrative and plot and you know mystery focused things they take a lot of work it's not just like ah there's a square room and there's a vampire like what do you do um so yeah we had to spread the load around so so, yeah. Did you do you remember distinctly anything that you made back then? Oh like... yeah, vividly. Oh yeah, we 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 started. Um, there was this long period of time where we started doing sort of episodic serialized stuff that started in. Someone ran an ancient Rome campaign. Okay. And uh, and then someone ran a sequel to that campaign that was like you know ten years later, and it was like you know couple of the characters are the same and a couple of them were like you know the the sons of the characters from the previous campaign or whatever and then and then we ended up just moving through through history we ended up doing um i don't i don't think we ever did any medieval stuff maybe we there was a big gap but we also did a bunch of victorian era stuff and then some like you know 1920s era stuff and 19 30s era stuff and was this, World War II. Was this based era. on GURPS maybe? Yeah, it was GURPS. Okay. Yeah, we were using so, like, GURPS. This is probably not D&D, so. Yeah, we were using GURPS. And um, yeah, and then there was, you know, World War II era stuff and wow. Vietnam War stuff and like Cold War stuff. Yeah, it was great. Like wow, that's and, and these whole things were like these big elaborate through lines that went, you know, right. you'd be playing the grandchildren of the character you'd played in the first campaign or something like that. Do you cool. think you can like sum up as you were making these you must have like gotten better at certain things yeah as you went along can yeah. you like do you think you can remember like like the lessons you learned like what worked and what didn't work um because it's kind of I like mean, so much so much of this stuff and that doesn't it doesn't apply to making uh to making the kind of video games that i make now so much of it is being able to improvise and keep keep a complicated plot coherent and keep a through line in the face of players who are who are really fucking smart right Mm -hmm. um they can figure out your plot in the first 15 minutes of your you know you've got six weeks that you have to run this thing for five or six hours you got 30 hours of campaign that you kind of have roughly structured in your head they figure it out in 10 minutes you're Mm -hmm. like oh shit what do i do right There's some monsters. <laughs> well, you guys fight the monsters. I'm gonna rebuild the whole like game plot in my head. Oh, there's right? a lot of monsters. Hey there. <laughs> yeah. coming up everywhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, there was. Um, well, I mean, there was. So there was this one um, series of campaigns we ran. We ran these these sort of like I don't want to call it really a horror thing, but it was it was more like League, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was a Victorian era themed thing one of the characters i think was like a police inspector or something but he was a werewolf 
Um, but like, like, like a bad werewolf, like we, we needed to, it wasn't like he was cool because he was a werewolf. It was like, he has a serious problem because he's a werewolf and we have to be careful. Right. Right. Um, and another, one of the characters was, uh, um, shit, I can't remember all the details. Anyways, um, one of the characters was like an alchemist, right? Right. And I was running this campaign and I had this thing where they were like trying to, um, there was this plot to murder Queen Victoria and this big assassin dude came and like was trying to kill Queen Victoria and everything went to shit and they they like killed the main villain that I had queued up. Wow. Like they just they just fucking nailed him. And I was just like, oh, shit, what do I do? Right. Um and so and, you were uh, you guys were very strict about like if something happened. Pretty much, yeah. 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 You just had to roll with it. And uh and so so of course I had to like reframe the whole thing so that the guy that, that I that was my main villain was actually just a pawn of some other unknown villain and then I spent the next week trying to figure out how that was all going to work but right. uh, and then and then what got born out of that was this idea that the character who was the alchemist had been secretly working on a bunch of alchemical and he became he became the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character mm-hmm. um, but he didn't know it <laughs> so like he was actually the one who he was the his alter ego was the villain <laughs> and so over the course okay. of the campaign, they're trying to find this character who they've now dubbed Mr. Ugly. They would right, you know, right. solve some part of the mystery and then they'd go to bed at night and they'd wake up in the middle of the night and like see this Something's dark happened. figure like running away in the dark, having stolen like their, the secrets that they found or the evidence that they had or whatever. And they're like, what the, what do we do? Like this Mr. Ugly, he seems to know our every move. He's like always one step ahead. Cause like Mr. Ugly knew everything that yep. the other character knew, but the other character didn't know about him. And at one point they're, um, they're chasing Mr. Ugly down this like steam tunnel or something like that, and he's he's fast, and so he's gonna get away. And like one of the characters just stops and empties his like revolver down this steam tunnel into the dark, right? And I'm like, okay, well, roll the dice, and he got a, he got a critical hit, right? And uh, and so okay, and he didn't know, right? I was making him roll behind because he didn't couldn't see. And they go to, and they they you know he just fired off the shots, and they went back and did some stuff, and then they're like, well, we should go down the steam pipes and see if see if we can find him and then they find a blood trail and then they find the alchemist character mm-hmm. like all beaten up and shot and left to die right and they're like right. oh man he must have been trying he was trying to kidnap this guy. owen right. and you know i fired into the dark and like but it's actually like they thought right. mr ugly was trying to kidnap the other character and they're like they're making up all this stuff i'm like i don't know why you think that but like okay <laughs> right? and so and so and then finally at one point as they're like, you know, they're inventing the entire field of like ballistics and like crime, you know, it's all very Sherlock Holmes, right? They're inventing all this, you know, scientific inquiry into, into, you know, crime solving. And, uh, at one point I remember like, you know, they, they pulled the bullet out of him mm-hmm. and the surgery and they're like, and it's a bullet from a, a Patterson 32. And I'm, and because they're asking like, what kind of bullet is it? Maybe yeah. we can figure out which gun, who, you know, who owns the gun or whatever. And I'm like, it's a bullet from a Patterson 32. And I see the guy who's playing the Owen character. Right. He kind of goes Patterson. And he kind of looks at the character who I think is the police chief werewolf dude. Uh-huh. And he looks at him and he's like, Patterson 32. And he looks at me, and he's looking at the other guy, and I can see the gears in his head going like this, like, clink, 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 yeah, clink. Yeah. And then he just goes, oh, my God. Like, the realization just hits him. Right. And he's like, you guys, I think I know who Mr. Ugly is. And they're like, who? And he's like, 
it's me. And then he unpacks the whole thing, like, you know, four weeks worth of all of this mystery and intrigue. And they're like, oh my fucking God, into the jail with you, man. You're not leaving. So, yeah, I mean, really cool. Like, again, like. That's great. That's the great end of the movie scene right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, then they still had to solve all the problems and put in motion and everything. But, yeah, it was. Uh, anyways, the point was, like, needing to, needing to be able to respond to what the player can do. Mm-hmm. Huh. And maybe it is a thing I've taken into game. I was gonna say it's interesting that you say you like you preface this whole thing like this was stuff that's not applicable at all to the work I do. But like a lot of the games you made are about dealing with the fact that the player can do stuff that you don't expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I talk about it, it's like yeah, I try to, I try to. It's like you said, the we we played with rules that were very like yeah, the the dice fall where they may, right? Right. Like what happens is what happens. Roll with it, yeah, and. and so yeah, like I guess that's true. Like that's kind of a philosophy that I have. It's like you you if you're gonna if you're gonna simulate something, like don't try to don't try to cordon it off. Like let it let it be. Why did you have that philosophy at that age? Yeah, it's a really time. good question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean I, it's probably something that grew up with those guys. Like it's something we all did together, I guess. Um, I don't know. And so so yeah, I guess that's just always it was Far back as I can think, it's just always been my my philosophy about games, even before I made games. So. Yeah. Was most of the work in these campaigns sort of narrative based, or did you have like a, a level component to it as well? Um, Mostly, like, like we would um, occasionally we would have to do like you know have a map for like someone's base or someone's mm-hmm. castle or someone's fortress or whatever, but for the most part. Um, yeah, it was mostly just like working out the story and the plot and who the characters were and and what was what the major events would be and then kind of a lot of improv- improvisation to get through it. Um, mm-hmm. And then as needed, you know, like, okay, there's you come to this little village and there's, you know, the the thieves are, you know, working out the back of the whatever, the, the stonemason. And so you'd, you know, draw the thing out on the battle mats and like everybody would have figures and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we usually didn't have those maps prepared hmm. much in it. It wasn't the maps themselves weren't that important, yeah. really. There's so many different approaches because I, you know, I made some modules too back back in the day um, with a group I played with. And um, it was, uh, for me, it was always just like, the best thing is like a blank pad of graph paper. Yeah, sure. Right? You know, yeah. like that's, that's how I started. Like I, yeah. I, probably put almost no time into the narrative. It was about like, here's this castle and right. it's got, it's got, you know, it either goes up or it goes down or maybe even better, it does both. Right. You know, yeah. like how do all the different spires, the castle will fit together and yeah. like what's over here. And yeah. Like, um, you know, just building, building all that stuff was what was, was fun. And then, yeah. you know, revealing it, surprising the players with yeah. what was up there. Yeah. Um, but, we, but that's just a totally different approach to it. Yeah. I mean, I went through a short phase of that um, and, you know, had, you know, a few small handfuls of modules, but um, it was, I always found it more fun to like look through the modules and look at all the maps and figure, figure out all the stuff that the, that the people who created maps and castles and dungeons had done. And like, I had more fun reading modules than I did playing them. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, for me, it was just, those were, those were all spare parts that just became part of the thing. Yeah. Wow. Cool. I didn't realize you had, you had so much uh, RPG experience, or yeah, I guess. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we played for for many years, like all kinds of different stuff. It was really good. Yeah. Really good. Cool. So, um, were you also so this this would have been after through high school and afterwards, right? Yeah. So 
this would have been, I mean, this would have stopped in 2000. So, like, I, I graduated from high school in 1990. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, through high school from grade 8 is when I started. So, 15, 15 years of, like, yeah, mostly playing different different tabletop games with those guys. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, so starting in high school, like, were you, what type of, were you, did you have, like, did you get PC at some point? Or, I mean, obviously, you, did, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't really get, get into consoles, so. I didn't uh, get a PC until... I didn't even get a PC until after high school. I got a PC. I got a, not, it wasn't even a PC. I got like a, what was it called? A Mac Classic, I think, mm-hmm. in 1991, like the year after I finished high school so that I could, you know, have a computer to, because I was going into, well, I wasn't even going into writing at the time. I was going into just general arts, but so I could write essays and stuff for school. Sure. Um, so like, I guess what I mean is like during this you know late eighties early to mid nineties period like were you playing were you playing a lot of video nope. games or not nope no nope. no after after Ultima mm-hmm. which would have been in like grade seven and eight or something like that maybe right. when I was playing with Dave and we started playing D and don't think I played video games until <laughs> at all until like until I started well that's not true um, in by the mid nineties ninety five ninety six ninety seven. Mm-hmm. These guys that I was gaming with, some of them would have because they were a couple years older than me. So now they're like graduating from college, getting jobs and stuff, <clears throat> and uh, they would have PCs. And that was when that was great because I would go over to a friend's place, right? Um, you know, after after school or after work, and you know, we'd order a pizza and put a hockey game on, and like like, and I'd play Thief while sure while the hockey game was on or whatever so I that that was my exposure at that point was I would go over to a friend's place and play Duke Nukem or Doom or Quake or Thief Rainbow Six uh, System Shock eventually Deus Ex um, it was probably not until about 90 it was 98 that I got my first actual PC mm-hmm. um, and was able I think I I think I I got it in fact, I think I got it and I was able to play Thief 2 on it barely. Like right. everything turned down to min. And then by the time Deus Ex came out, I couldn't even run it. Right. Um, and then, yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, but so you kind of experienced the uh, the tree of, of shooters that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely like was lucky enough to be able to start playing what I would call the kind of. You know the the silver era of of right. you know immersive sims or whatever like like the Looking Glass games and Ion Storm games and and uh, you know uh, around about that Alpha Centauri came out around there too. Okay. Um, so yeah, I got to play a you know a lot of really good games in that window between like ninety five and two thousand or whatever. Right. Just a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Um, With um, so I mean yeah, that's a great era, obviously. Um, but uh, you know, everyone was playing Doom and Quake back then, yeah. right? Um, yeah. But not everyone was playing, you know, Thief and yeah. like, the stuff was coming out of Looking Glass. How how did you come upon that? Like, did you did you just? I mean, it was not even yours either. It was theirs. Yeah, right? yeah. So, um, were you just lucky that they they wanted to buy I Thief? I think if I remember, like we played Doom a bunch and we thought it was fun, but mm-hmm. fun in the real casual way that that you know. People often think of games just fun, light entertainment. It's hilarious. Right. And we had a few times when we would get a few machines together and there'd be six of us on a LAN or whatever, or eight of us if we were lucky. And then um, I think Duke Nukem, um, believe it or not, actually 
collectively all of us that little group of guys who were gaming together and you know different friends so maybe 20 of us in different kind of pods of our extended circle of friends um i think duke nukem opened a lot of people's eyes to the idea that you know because doom is just a shooter you just shoot things duke nukem has a lot more the interactions are, are much more robust you have trip mines you have you know, you can blow holes in certain kinds of walls. You have, you know, shrink rays and freeze rays and like different, different way. And you can flush toilets to get health back and you can drink water. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these, you know, the hollow duke and like, yeah, there's just this more robust set of interactions that you can do in the world. Many of which are meaningless, but some of which are, are really meaningful and interesting and expressive. And I think for all of us it was like like doom was cool and we thought it was fun but it wasn't like an eye-opening experience for us but i think duke nukem was like oh shit like there's more there's more here right right um and then and then yeah that created a a thirst and so people explored around and found games like thief and system shock and and then once once you know about that stuff you can you know it's impossible to miss this amazing thing called deus ex that's coming right like so yeah, we were pretty, pretty tuned in, I guess. Right. Yeah. Cool. Did you just? Um, I'm more experienced with Thief than with Deus Ex, but that's that's one game. And even though I've never made a shooter or whatever, that's that's like to me one absolutely like landmark game that just yeah. stood out to me as yep. like, you know, this is way beyond anything I've played before. Yep. Um, Thief was brilliant because, um, well, for all the reasons it's brilliant, but it's also like. Again, when you got a when you got a game or you had a chance to play a game back in '95, you just played the game fucking ten times. Like yeah. it's there's not going to be another good game until you know next Christmas. Like <laughs> like you just play the same game ten times or ten times over. And games like Thief and and Deus Ex and System Shock they really afforded like playing the game lots of times, lots of different ways. Um, very expressive like you know hey i'm gonna play the i'm gonna play thief and i'm gonna get good at sword fighting this is a hard game to be good at actual combat but i'm gonna be good at it like yeah you can do that it's not a very good game if you do that but you can do it right (laughs) but one of my good friends jason he uh he always makes a point of playing the underwater guy at some point when he plays one of these games so he, like he played deus ex and put all of his points into like water breathing and oh, swimming and wow. like all of these totally fucking useless skills so like yeah in the three levels where there's like some side path where you can go underwater like <laughs> yay wow. so, just weird stuff like that <laughs> yeah i mean what i loved about thief was that um it felt like you know i was I was playing the level, not the other way around, you know, like, yeah. like it was, um, yeah. I was taking it completely the way I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and you know, not just, not just in like what I want to do with it, but at my own pace, yeah. there was a reason to go slow. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, there's just nothing quite like that. Deus Ex kind of just baffled me. Yeah. Like the, the first couple times I tried to play it, I just, Whatever I, I tried, it just seemed to fail miserably. Really? Like, I'm going to try to snipe people. That just doesn't seem to work. I'm hmm. going to try to st- uh, taser or stun or whatever it would have been. And like, yeah. I just, I wasn't able to pull it off. And I was like, this is weird. All right. Yeah. I, don't... I mean, Deus Ex is, is probably very poorly balanced, I think, if I remember. Um, so, and I think particularly in the first, like, I don't know, it was about the first third of the game before, uh, 
one of the other augmented dudes like tries to kill you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I do remember the first like few hours of the game being really punishing and hard. Yeah. Um, but not, not like challenging, just like punishing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just kind of like, this is, you know, like the, my mind extrapolated in these weird ways. Of like, if this is how the game begins. Like what, what's going to happen next? Like yeah. this, <laughs> this seems I, really strange. There's know? also weird stuff. Like I, like, I think one of the, it's called like the P P ninety or something. I can't remember what it's called, but there's like a weapon in Deus Ex that's like a one shot like like knockout weapon mm-hmm. that has like one use. But it's and it's like it, it, it's famous for being one of the stupidest weapons ever created in any video game ever. It just like it takes up a slot in your inventory. Like and if you have you, they don't stack, so like they they're everywhere and you can fill up your inventory with them like super easily. But they're totally fucking useless. Um, like, it's just inferior in every way to, to, it is inferior to not having it because you'd rather have the empty slot than have this stupid piece of junk. Right. So, and there's weird broken shit like that in Deus Ex and, and in, you know, most of these, in any game with a lot of player freedom, there's always broken degenerate shit and that's just part of the deal. Um, but yeah, this one was particularly frustrating because you're like, oh, I've got this thing and it's, it, you know, it can take down anyone in one hit. So I better make sure to use it right. And you just never, you never can. You yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> you get punished for even thinking about it. So what, what do you remember about Deus Ex? Like when you started to play it? Like I remember not being able to run it. I remember getting three frames a second. That was my, <laughs> yeah. Cause I, you know, my PC at that point was like two years old or something and it just mm-hmm. like, it just couldn't handle it and I couldn't buy a new video card. Um, so it was another, I didn't actually get to play it until a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I don't even think I played it. It came out in 2000, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't even think I played it until I was at Ubisoft. Working. So you were already working. Yeah. The time. And then I, uh, and then I, at that point I had a, you know, I had my work machine and I was able wow. to like play it on my work. See, machine that's something because I think of Splinter Cell being just like, like there'd be a huge gap between like yeah it's where weird when you think like, about it right like, yeah like I still remember thinking like I if I think of what Deus Ex looks like yeah. it's like it's an old it's an old nineties game that doesn't yeah. hold up well visually and then I think yeah. of Splinter Cell it's like well you know it's not a modern game but like this is it's a whole other yeah type of world there's a big leap that happened there for sure I don't know what it was exactly um it must just be like I think people are just starting to get more professional. I think, you know, like, uh, well, you, you probably know better than I would. So I'm, I, I suspect a lot of it was technological. I, I suspect that the, you know, unified, I mean, the big advantage of consoles in my opinion is like unified and predictably stable hardware for a long period of time. And like people can, you can really set yourself up to take advantage of that. And if you, even for a launch title or a year two title on a console, like if you, if you plan well, it's easy to be, it's not easy. Sorry, I shouldn't say it's easy. If you plan well, you can be a year ahead of everybody. Because like it takes, you know, it takes two or three years for the tech people to really figure out how to get the most out of a new console. Right. But if you just front load a bunch of that and you you spend, like you can get a big leap. So in a sense, you're getting like, you know, you're getting a game a year in advance of where you are mm-hmm. if you do it right. And I think there was a little bit of that in Splinter Cell, like a few really smart people getting the getting the art and the rendering and the you know, figuring out how to optimize all the triangles and all of that shit. Um, I think it, I think it made a big difference. Um, and you're also not having to optimize like, you know, for all the different configurations of hardware and all of that stuff. You're just all in on one, one config. So it's a big advantage. Hmm. 
Now, another game you mentioned from that period was Rainbow Six. Is that yeah? What did what did you like? What part of that game are you talking about? <clears throat> the I really liked Rainbow Six because I really liked um, again it it was a game where it wasn't really a shooter. It was mm-hmm. like using first person mechanics, yeah. but it wasn't really a shooter. It's about and I, you know I got really into the planning stuff and yeah. like using that really effectively and whatever. But then it was also like a really great game where we could all get our boxes together and like yeah. take them over to Joe's house and at you know ten in the morning on a Saturday and spend four fucking hours making getting the land set up and making sure everyone's got the same version of the patch and like yeah. all of the drivers are the same. Like it was such a nightmare. Yeah, but yeah. then once it was working, it's like two in the afternoon, the land set up. <laughs> then yeah. we have the barbecue and then we start playing and yeah. we play until five o'clock in the morning uh, and play the whole game. Um, so that was amazing, right? Like having six of us or whatever, all in the same room on a bunch of tables set up, like all facing each other and playing Rainbow Six, like having never played it before. Like, you know, I think it was Rainbow Six Rogue Spear. We all bought Uh it. We're like, we we all swore we're not going to play it until we can all get together. And we picked a date and we got it all set up and we did that. And it was amazing. Like that was such a great experience. Some of my best gaming stories ever. Like I remember, you know, my friend Pat Redding, right? So I remember... There's this one, there's a couple of amazing stories. One of them, there's Was this, he in your D&D group? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've, wow. known, I've known Pat since uh, about 1993 or something like that. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we, there's this Kosovo level in Rainbow Six um, Rogue Spear. Uh-huh. There's like a crashed helicopter, some American colonel's been taken hostage. And it's very hard because there's some long roads in this town and there's like some snipers and um and they just instantly kill you if you step into the line of fire instantly um and i remember we're, we're still we've tried this mission five or six times and we're still trying to figure out where this sniper is and uh i remember we find this little back thing through these buildings and it's me and pat on sort of one flank and we come into this room and like the, the wall of the room is blown out onto the street and we go in and we stack up on either side of the room like backs against the wall with a hole over here and I'm looking at Pat's character model on my screen and Pat's sitting like right where you are opposite me. And I'm like, and I realize that I have like an MP5 that doesn't have a scope on it. And he's got some kind of carbine with a scope. And I see him standing there in, on the screen and I look over to him and I go, hey, Pat, you've got a, you've got a scope on your gun. And he's like, yep. And I'm like, let's switch sides and you can look down the street. And so we switch sides and I go back to the wall and he takes half a step from where I was just standing. Bang! And he falls <laughs> down dead. And I was just like, it was this weird thing of like, fuck, like that was me. If I if I'd taken mm-hmm. half a step, me, I would be dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then another another amazing story was another time. There's like this pillbox in this base that you have to infiltrate, and there's a guard like looking out the window with a pillbox on a machine gun or something. And there's like a a, a concrete doorway into the pillbox, and we finally managed to get up alongside of it, and we're sne- we sneak under the window. And we're like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to pop in and shoot him? Like, how are we going to get him? And Pat's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a grenade and bounce it off the inside of the door frame yep. into the thing. So he takes out the grenade. And I'm like, I'm crouched behind him so I can see his character. And I see the grenade come in his hand and he throws it. And the grenade hits the inside of the door frame and then 
bounces like three points on the inside of the door frame, like door frame, door frame, door frame, uh-huh. lands in the middle of the door, uh-huh. and Pat goes, Murphy, 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 <laughs> and he starts backing up, and he runs into me, and I can't back up, and the guy inside goes, Granada, and comes running out the door to get away from the grenade, uh-huh. and takes half a step past the grenade, right. and it blows up, and he goes flying, <laughs> and and like, boom, and the screen goes white, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I'm like, Holy shit, I'm alive. And Pat's like, I'm alive. <laughs> like the guy had like stepped over the grenade and taken the blast. Yeah. And so we're both still alive. And then of course it's just like bang, 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 bang. And we're totally disoriented. Like what's going on? And everybody's like, they're coming. And then we're in the middle of this gun battle. It's just a really crazy, intense, like, yeah. you know, intimate moment of like camaraderie. It was really cool. Yeah. I have, I have actually very similar stories. It's, those are, yeah. those are also my favorite memories from that era. Yeah. It was like playing with like, Three or four friends yeah. on yeah Rainbow, Rainbow Six, Rogue Spear, Ghost Recon, all yeah. those all those series of games. It was um, because yeah, I mean, I I I didn't get really sucked into Doom at all, right? Like it was like okay, that's kind of cool, yeah, right. But like, but the, you know, the first time I played Rainbow Six, it's like you get shot and you're dead, yeah, and you're like oh. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah, this is different. Yep. Right, you know, and we would we wouldn't play the story missions so much. We would do the terrorist hunt thing. Yeah, um, yeah. which is like I think it just puts like 20, 20 yeah. guys on the level, kind of randomizes yeah. them. Yeah, and uh, you know it'd be this intense thing of like you know usually we go in pairs through the two pairs through the place, and you yeah. know one guy opens the door, the other guy is aiming yeah. left after aiming right, whatever, and like. Um, I wasn't I wasn't as good as some of the other guys, so it was like this intense thing of like I want to contribute, but I also want to die. I don't want to die because if right. I die, I'm gonna be sitting around for ten minutes waiting for, right. the, waiting for <laughs> them yeah. to clear the rest of the level. Yeah. Um, and uh, but yeah, that, those experiences were they were great. Yeah, were amazing. And I remember yeah. um, the one of the first levels. It probably is the first level in Rainbow Six was in this museum. Um, do you remember that? The first, I think the first level in the first Rainbow Six is the embassy. It's like a white embassy building. Okay. Yeah, you probably remember that. But yeah. one of the, one of the, like, one of the, I mean, we, like, I, I never even touched the story. It was all right. just like, win a multiplayer, do terrorist hunt, pick one of the things. But one of the levels was in a museum. Yeah. Where it's got the big, big rectangular open area. And then With you the can go, deck around the top? Yeah, the deck I around remember, the top. Yeah. yeah. And like, there's a ship in one yeah. of the other rooms yeah. and uh, blah, blah, blah. And then there's, I think that's one where it's that, that temple, there's the temple room with yeah. the slanted yeah. Yeah. things. Now I'd never been to New York yeah. before I played that game. Yeah, I right? have been. So, so yeah. um, you know, we played that level a whole bunch of times. And then later on, you know, when I moved out to Baltimore and went to New York and I go to the Met, you know, I walked in the Met and I looked like, around, I was like, Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, this is this so is weird. weird. Yeah. It's, it's the boat and it's yeah. the temple and yeah. like that was a bizarre some bizarre experience. Yeah, <laughs> that is a that is a weird experience, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I have uh a lot of my knowledge of New York City came from playing Spider-Man 2, so I remember the first time. <laughs> and I've been to New York a couple times before that, but I remember um the first time I went to New York after playing Spider-Man 2 and we're coming across um, whatever the bridge is that comes in from the airport. And, you know, we go down onto that, onto the waterfront road around the side of the Manhattan or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I, I actually like have a pretty Notice. good sense of where I am and where we're going because of Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's cool. Funny. Do the, do the Assassin's Creed, Creed games do a good job of that now? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know, but, um, because the, the cities are so 
I mean, I've never been to Acre. Yeah, right? yeah, sure. Um, but like but, Memphis, uh, for example. But, like but I've been playing Unity. I've been playing Assassin's Creed Unity quite a bit, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm not now because all my stuff is in a box in a warehouse in Mississauga somewhere. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I you know, I know Paris fairly well. I've been right. around there. Um, and uh, yeah, there are definitely places where I'm like running up a street and I'm like, yep, I, this, I bet you the next corner is such and such street. And like, sure enough, yep, there it is. Yep, I, I, I recognize... Not necessarily the specific buildings, but I recognize the, you know, thing things about the structure of it. It definitely feels pretty authentic to me. Yeah. Although some things like you know the whole Ile de la Cité where the where Notre Dame is and all of mm -hmm. that, like it's not it's not the same as it was back. Like it was all yeah, built sure. up. Now there's a huge you know, yep, yep. Uh, square there that wasn't there um, back yeah. in the time of the game. Yeah. I mean, it must be something that would be actually if you live in one of those cities to like kind of be able to experience yeah. it. Because I mean, I don't, I don't know any of those locations well enough that like I, it would be meaningful to me to see right. like what's missing and right. what used to be here. But you kind of wonder where that, that seems like that's going to be something that's going to get only more and more interesting as technology gets better. Yeah. Um, really cool thing. So another, another game you mentioned during that era, um, which is, is, sticks out a bit, is Alf Centauri. Sure. Yeah. So how did sure. that happen? I don't know how it happened. Again, it was uh, it was my friend Jason, the same guy who's you know who I would play Thief on his machine and System Shock and all that. But yeah, Alpha Centauri. Um, Had you played Civ One Mike. or Civ Two? Never played Civ One or Civ Two. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, at, although my friend Greg had I think played Civ Civ One or Civ Two or something. Sure. Anyways, and uh, and so yeah, they they had Alpha Centauri, and I started playing that and. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that game. I thought it was fantastic. It was my first time playing a real-time strategy game. Uh, sorry, turn-based turn strategy game. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, like I'd never heard of a tech tree before. I'd never, right. you know, I had no concept of what this kind of game was or what it meant. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was, it's a big game, right? You can really, yep. you Get can, you know, and I think you, if I remember, you can, like, determine, you can set the size of the world. You can have, like, oh, yeah. a giant-sized world and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Um how about the sea levels are like and yeah, the erosion yeah. levels, how old the world is. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I have, again, I have really, my experience in that game was I started as the Spartans mm -hmm. and uh, almost immediately was at war with like the Morganites and the Believers yep. and was flanked, uh, was, had, bordered the hive and the hive just fucking exploded and they were just huge and so powerful. And just very immediately, I was just their bitch. Like I just, I was just their servant, right? Uh -huh. I was, I was their the buffer between them and the believers, and um, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't grow. I couldn't. I couldn't. You know, I couldn't wipe out the believers or the Morganites. I couldn't make peace with anyone. And I was, and and the hive was just giving me stuff and like keeping me around. And uh, as the game progressed, I decided my strategy was I'm just going to go all in on uh, building planet busters yeah. and and I don't know what's going to happen. And the believers were, I remember at one point the believers just kept attacking me. And I, I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like I had one city. I had 10 or 12 cities or something. Um, but the believers just kept attacking me. And at one point the hive sent me shard helicopters to help me defend against the believers. Um, 
and they sent me shard, and they would send, you know, the shard helicopter would fly in, and then the pop-up would come. The shot, the hive has sent you a shard helicopter to help defend the city of such and such. Mm -hmm. You'd have to click OK, yep. and then another pop-up. You cannot support shard helicopter, <laughs> and then you'd have to click OK. The hive has sent you a shard, and I, I swear to God, it took me half an hour to. Yeah. They sent me like. 200 fucking shard helicopters and I had to dismantle <laughs> all of them because I couldn't support them. Oh. Like it was mind-boggling, right? How how just outclassed and outgunned I was in every way. And then I ended up that's, winning the game. That's a, such a typical Civ type problem. <coughs> oh, right? yeah, all these course. systems are like yeah. you, have the, you have the one system doing this cool thing and then the other system comes along and ruins it and yeah. it's like it's so hard to fix as a designer. But, anyway, but I ended okay. up, yeah, I ended up having only 12 cities so I've I put a whatever it is a water dome over all of oh, them, okay. and then yeah. I just unloaded my nukes on yep. everybody and the hive as well. I just nuked the shit out of everything and flooded the whole world. <laughs> like I was the only one left with my seven dome cities. <laughs> like yep. I remember again, same thing. I remember firing my ninety nine nukes or whatever it was at the hive, and like watching all of their like uh, anti you know space weapon satellites or whatever shooting them down. It's mm -hmm. like. You know, because I think what happens is you shoot it and every single one of their satellites can try to shoot it. Right. Um, but they can only use a satellite once a turn or something. So, sure. like, I'd shoot one and it would get through the first one and then get shot down by the second one. And then the next one would get shot down by the third one. And the next one would get missed by the... And then, and then it, you know, he, right. he had 52 satellites or something. And then by the time... I yeah, and then it was like okay, now I've got forty-seven missiles left. Like, <laughs> who's gonna die? Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Wow, you have a pretty intense memory of a game. I mean, these from are these were pretty intense. Uh, years ago, these are pretty intense, like formative things, right? Yeah. Like these are these were really. Um, and you'd never, you probably had hardly ever played a strategy type game. I had never, I had never, uh, I I'd played uh, like real time strategy, a couple of real time strategy sure. games. I was never a fan of real time strategy games at all. I'd played like you know one of the Command and Conquer games and I think I'd played Dune on another friend's sure. like Apple or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I never really liked them. This was, this was a different thing. Yeah. Were you, I mean, it's kind of, uh, Al Centauri is kind of a hard place to start for the Civ <laughs> series. Um, did you find it baffling or like, um, like it's like you didn't have the paradigm that almost all, everyone else did who jumped into that game. I did have a manual. Yeah. And I, again, because I didn't, the, the computer wasn't mine. Like I would go, I'd watch my friend play for a few hours. I'd start a game. I'd play for an hour. Mm. Then I would take the manual home. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I'd read the fucking manual yeah. cover I, to cover. I, I remember reading the manual that game. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I would come back and then I'm like, okay, I think I know what I'm going to do. And I'd try and, you know, my friend was there to help answer questions and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it was a pretty, pretty intense, uh, Baptism, and like I said, like it had I had I not been taken under the wing of the hive from the very mm. beginning of the game, I just would have lost like yeah. instantly. Yeah. Um, so. Well, the diplomacy is probably the thing that stands out the most of Al Centauri that was like really notable because that game did a great job of putting up factions in sort of nat it had these factions that had natural opposition to each other. Right. Yeah. So um, one of the in in a I mean, most of the Civ games, a common thing that you'll see players do is, you know, they basically put all the resources to just make everybody happy. Right. Right. You know, like, maybe they're going to try to take out, conquer the world, but if, if not, if they just want to, like, try to get as big as possible, it's like, well, I'm just going to give everyone gifts and try to make sure they all love me, right? Right. Whereas Al Centauri forces you yeah. to make choices. Yeah. Right. You can't make both of us 
happy. Yeah, you can't right? be you're friends not, with the believers if you're friends with the hive. Right, you're going to have to make a choice. And in fact, if you refuse to make a choice, you'll probably make us both unhappy, Yeah, which was like a, yeah. a great. So, um, yeah. yeah, that was a great thing about the design. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so... So what were what were you doing during this period of time? Because you were out of you graduated in nineteen ninety. Yeah. I was in so yeah after after I graduated high school. So there's a ten year gap. Yeah. So after I graduated high school, um, I went to like a community college to, mm-hmm. to like uh, finish out well to like do to do my first two years of like general arts right. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ontario? In, no, in this is in Vancouver. I was living in Vancouver. Oh, you are right, right. You're right. Um, and. Um, so I did two years in community college and then decided that I didn't want to go do like a BA mm-hmm. and that I wanted to, that I wanted to, um, so I did two years of community college because I wanted to do a BA and then for my electives, I took creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, at that point I decided I didn't want to do a BA. I probably wanted to do a BFA but I didn't want to go into the creative writing program because um, I had, well, I didn't even know if I didn't even apply. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably wouldn't have been accepted, but I didn't, I didn't want to, I wasn't mentally prepared for what would be involved in having to have criticism on my writing. Right. Um, and but I knew I was a shitty artist. So I went in the same community college where I'd done my two years of general arts. I transferred into the visual fine arts program there, like drawing and painting and sculpture and all of that stuff. Um, and got accepted into that weirdly, cause I'm a terrible artist. Um, but I guess I was good enough to get in. And, um, and so I did two years of, of a BFA essentially, um, in, in visual fine arts and, that was kind of on purpose because it was a way for me to start to learn how to be what critical did, about my create. What did you think you wanted to do at this point? Or was that I wanted just, to be a writer. You wanted to be a writer. Yeah, I wanted okay. to be a writer. And I, I knew in order what to do it, What type of a writer? You wanted like to write novels? Yeah, I wanted to be oh, an novelist. Okay. Um, and I knew I would have to learn how to take criticism and that if I tried to do that with my writing, it would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew always... I was a shitty artist. Sure. So like I could go into art school and if I could get in, people would tell me that my painting sucked and I would be like, yeah, you're right. It does <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> help me get better. Right? Right, right. So I could learn kind of a positive culture of crit- crit- criticism and, and why did you thinking. want to, why did you want to be a writer? Uh, I think I'd probably always, I, I mean, I remember from being five years old, wanting to be a writer. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, because you enjoy making stories because you enjoy the process of writing because you want to be creative because I enjoyed making stories. Yeah. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed making stories and expressing myself and like, you know, right. Imagining. So that must've been, so the D and D modules we talked about, that must've been oh, one, yeah. one of the big major outlets for yeah, that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you also write? Like short stories yeah. and stuff like this. Yeah, I wrote lots of short things. stories. Yeah, all I mean, all through school and college and everything, I was always writing stories. Do you um, do you ever go look at those again? I only kept a very small number. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's good to do work, right? Like that's yeah. super important if you yeah. want to like do that type of thing. Like, yeah. What type of stories would you write? All kinds. I mean, like you know, you? different. I mean, a lot character of my, based, or were they like? Um, I mean, they, they changed a lot over the years. Like, obviously, like they were when I was a kid, they were really like, you know, teenager, teen angst, 
action stories. And then as I got older, they, there, you know, there was a kind of a science fictiony kind of phase. And mm -hmm. then, um, and then as I got older still, like I, um, and then into college and university, my stories got really like weird. And I don't want to say like weird, like, like not William S. Burroughs weird, but really, um, really crazy, like, sure. like pinch and weird. Mm -hmm. Um, um, which were, were, I mean, were you doing a lot of reading, I assume at this time as well? Like who um, did, yeah, you, who did yeah. you, who did you like? Um, I mean, I was, I always tried to read classics, so I would be reading Hemingway and, mm -hmm. and, and whatever Shakespeare and Fitzgerald and like, right. Um, and because you liked it or because you felt like you wanted that like background? It was a responsibility. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and mostly I didn't like, and yeah. What did you read that you, like, what did you read that you loved? Not much. Like, uh, probably, probably, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, like I, there's lots of Hemingway that I love, sure. um, but, uh, uh, stuff that I loved, you know, most, most science fiction or fan, like, I don't, I just don't even read fantasy. I tried to read a couple of fantasy books. Yeah. This is just unreadable garbage. Um, some fantasy, some science fiction, but not much. Most of it was garbage. Um, and probably until I read Neuromancer, I was like, mm, yeah. like, okay, I get it. There's a way to write science fiction that isn't just schlocky, like yeah. crap. Um, Neuromancer was very eye-opening for me, for sure. Yeah, I was too young to read that book when it came out, but it was like this. This was like this is a book I know that I will like. I'm going to try to read it yeah. <laughs> someday. I will love this book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then yeah, and then I started to get into into Pynchon and yeah. and more modern stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, after, after I finished fine arts in college, I used the fine arts to transfer into a BFA program and the two years of arts, like to transfer into a, a into a creative writing program at UBC. Mm -hmm. And then I finished my, my BFA in creative writing at UBC. And then from there I went into the master's in creative writing program at UBC oh, wow. and so did my master's degree in creative writing. Right. Um, so you did a lot of schooling. Yeah, yeah. I was in school. after high school. I had two, four, six, eight, eight years. So nine years actually, because there was kind of a weird nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and then technically, technically, I actually didn't get my. I, technically, that's when I finished my coursework was in two thousand, well ninety nine or whatever, and but my thesis wasn't done, and then I technically was finishing my thesis the entire time I was at working on Splinter Cell. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so during that during that period of the nineties, did you ever think about working in video games? Like is that something you thought so, was possible? Or? Um so it was my friend Jason, the guy whose computer I played Thief and Civ and or uh, Thief and Alpha Centauri and all these games on. Um Well let's, let's back also, up just a little bit. Like in early nineties. Like before you'd even get an experience, is that, is it something that you I had even never envisioned? thought of, I'd never thought of making video games as a career ever. Yeah. Um, when, and then in the, in the mid, when I was, when I was doing my master's degree, me and Pat Redding and these mm -hmm. other guys were making an independent film that I had written that was going to be my thesis, but then I decided it wouldn't be my thesis. Mm -hmm. We were making an independent movie. Like we shot it like, um, that was like, uh, ironically a little bit like, a little bit like Splinter Cell, really? bizarrely. <laughs> um, uh, How so? There was. I mean, that's hard. The, be the, hard to the do character was like this. This sort of like well, student the film. character was. Um, the character was. It was more like Daredevil. Mm -hmm. That looks like 
Splinter Cell. So the character was like this Russian immigrant kid that was like, you know, whatever. He was doing commando shit. He was a vigilante. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, um, so we were making this movie and uh, uh, I was also doing some like contract work writing for web companies and whatever. And uh, Unreal was around. That's another game we were playing a bunch of at the time was Unreal. And um, Unreal Tournament. And so I was learning how to use the Unreal Editor. Mm-hmm. We were doing stuff like I would like, you know, one of the things we had to do for our movie was like, um, we had to shoot a, there was a stunt. There was a high fall, like jump out of a window stunt was right. the climax scene in our movie. So we had to shoot that. We, we there was, believe it or not, in Canada, you can go to an armory, like a military base. And like, mm-hmm. we just talked to them and asked them if we could shoot our stunt inside their armory because it was tall enough that we could build our structure. Wow. So we went in and we, you know, took a bunch of photographs of the inside of an armor. Like, I don't think they would let you do that in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and measured everything. And then, like, I built a mock-up of the armory in Unreal so we could figure out, like, how big all of our stuff needed to be and, like, where we would put the cameras and we could do trial runs of getting the shots and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so, yeah. Like is was, that literally the reason you st- you first started to use a level editor? No, like, no. I mean, I was doing it for fun. Like, I was like, oh, there's okay. a level editor. Cool. cool. Kind of like Load Runner. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Awesome. It, yeah. So I started building Unreal levels, and like my buddy Jason would test them, and uh-huh. then and then this thing with the film, and then um, there was you know this was so when the sorry I saw her said so in the film you were using the level editor to just like to mock like up, a like, model yeah, yeah and then you actually guys actually built the thing and then we actually built the thing oh, yeah okay. Um, and then, uh, also there was like, uh, there was like a strike, the strike force mod for unreal tournament, which was kind of like, kind of like counter-strike or mm. whatever, okay. um, or tack ops or whatever was hot at the time. And so I actually built a level and shipped it with that mod. Um, and then, and, but again, had never really thought that I would be a game developer. Like it never had occurred to me. And then, Did yeah, you think about the fact that like there are people making these games? Like not, these weren't like weird. I mean, at this point, I'd already heard of like Warren Spector and Doug Church and Harvey sure. Smith, and like I read articles about these guys, and like, man, they're so smart, and their games are so cool. Like, yeah. Um, but like, you know, to me, they, it was like reading about Tom Cruise and fucking like, sure. like they were they were famous people, right? right. Um, you there was a gap. Like that. Yeah, you didn't know like. Um, right. And then yeah, and then literally one day, my buddy Jason. Um, because I was done, I'd finished my coursework. I was doing different writing jobs for like web companies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all contract work, and I was like, you know, kind of not knowing. You know, I had a master's degree, or I was soon to have a master's degree in creative writing. But what was I going to do, right? Yeah, right. And uh, were you trying to write a novel? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and anyways, my buddy Jason sent me a sent me a link to a job posting at Ubisoft. Like, hey. You want to go live in Montreal? Like, kind of like a joke, like, because he found a listing, like, someone who can work in Canada with Unreal experience who wants to work on a cool new game or whatever it was, right? And was he, sorry, was he in the industry at all? No, no, he, was no just... he was just, like, he would he would go to, this is how he would find out about Thief and System Shock oh, and all okay. of these games, find articles about War Inspector or whatever uh-huh. it is. And he just you know, he'd go it. to the forums or GameSpot or whatever, and he saw a job posting and sent it to me. Um, and none of your friends worked in the industry at all no, at that point. No, it was just okay. No, um, and uh, and I thought, ha ha ha, that's that's funny. Imagine if I went and became a level designer. Right. And I literally, I remember, I, I he sent me the email. I laughed. I clicked through to the link, and it was like Ubisoft's like job thing. Uh-huh. And I like had already, I had recently, like just days before, like made my resume. Right. Sure. Because I was shopping around, and I was uh-huh. like, oh well, I'll add like. Unreal Tournament Strike Force mod, whatever, and like write a cover letter and. So you, 
Is that a, was that like a team-based mod? I mean, like, were there like were there a number of people working on mod? Yeah, it was like a distributed like mod team. Okay. Like, and so some, you you helped make some levels, or whatever. I made a level. Like, I kind of contacted the guy, and mm -hmm. like, because you could just download their 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 mod, uh -huh. and then you could it, it integrated with the editor, so you could like put the things that you needed to into your map to make a level, and if it had the right prefix or whatever, or the right whatever the right whatever the three letters are called after the dot, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then it would then it would uh, recognize it as a level for the mod and you could try it. And so I was, you know, I would play my level and I would email it to my buddy Jason and we'd play it together and he'd yeah. give me feedback and like I'd fix a few things and move stuff around. It was, I mean, it's really easy to like move fucking CSG around, right? It was mm -hmm. so fast. And uh, I did a bunch of iteration on that and like, and then, yeah, then they accepted it into the mod and it went out with whatever version of the mod it went out with. And that would had only been like weeks before. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, and so Ubisoft was trying to hire people with Unreal experience yep. who could build levels for Splinter Cell. You did the exact right thing, basically. Like, yeah, like by, by purely by coincidence, right? Yeah. And so, and they also like had, you know, Ubisoft was a small company then. They didn't have any money. Like they didn't know really what How they were doing. How small were they? Well, Ubisoft in Montreal had like almost 500 people. So I guess they weren't small, but right. I mean, but Ubisoft around the world was still a pretty still, small yeah. company. I don't right? really remember like, what they did in the 90s at all. So Like Donald Duck gone quackers and all stuff, right? right? <laughs> um, and some Formula One games uh -huh. and like that were mostly in Europe and things like that. So this was the beginning of the Ubisoft that we know, basically. Splinter Cell was the beginning of the Ubisoft that we know. Yeah. yeah. Splinter Cell and then the following up with the Prince of Persia, like those two games coming like back to back. Yeah. It, yep. And it was also like the Red Storm acquisition. They bought Red Storm, which is how, Oh, right, right. right? That was but a, that, that was they, a they weren't Ubi at the time, right? Okay. They were, yeah, Red Storm was its own company, right? Did they, Ubi they publish had, them? Uh, I don't remember. I think so, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that part makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, yeah, I think ahead. Ubi was their publisher, and uh -huh. they had the Clancy license. So when Ubisoft bought them, they got the Clancy license, and that's how all of that came to be. And then they're like, let's make a... And I think, actually, they were working on on just a, like a spy techno thriller, like third-person action-adventure game. Right. And then once they got the Clancy license, they're like, Great. boom, it's a Clancy game. Like, yep. figure that part out. Um, but anyways, that was all before I started. And then, and then, yeah, they were also like, we don't, we're not going to, we're not going to relocate anybody and get them a visa. Like it has to be somebody who can in live and Canada. work in Canada. Yeah, right? Okay. Nice. So like, yeah. I was just like, I was literally one of like three people in the whole country that they could hire and they hired all three of us. Right. So, um, so yeah, lucky. And I often say like, you know, of the, of the whatever thousand fifteen thousand ten thousand i don't know how many people like got their first job in the game industry as a level designer in 2000 like i happened to be the guy who worked on splitter cell like i could have been hired as a level designer to work at some company that went out of business six weeks later like my life could be totally different right so just yeah let the dice fall fall where they may i guess right <laughs> wow yeah because yeah i assume you had no idea what type of game they were making. they wouldn't need they wouldn't even show it to me like I, went, Even when I you, went and interviewed, they wouldn't tell me anything about it. What about after the um, job offer? Um, well, after after the job, so I went and interviewed. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> story gets elaborate. I went and interviewed. They set me up with a relocation person mm -hmm. um, to show me around the city and look at apartments. Had you been in Montreal much before? I, I had been in Montreal once for like a 
like three or four days, like six years before or something, but I didn't know it at all. Um, the relocation person is my wife. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, so wow. they set me up with the relocation person who, set who you I up. then ended up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. Um, and, uh, but they didn't make me a job offer. So like I looked around and looked at apartments and was like, okay. And then got on a plane like two days later or whatever and flew back to Canada and was like, I don't know that. I mean, why would they set me up with a relocation person and, and not tell me if they're going to give me a job, whatever. Right. And then I got back to Canada and like the next day they phoned and made me an offer. And it was like, I mean, it was, uh, it's about 60% of what I'd made the previous year doing contract work. Like I was taking a 40% really? pay cut. Yeah. It was, wow. Yeah. You, um, that's interesting because yeah. I wouldn't necessarily assume you can make a lot of money doing contract writing work, but contract writing work for web companies in Vancouver during the no, that was that was a weird yeah. Time, I mean, I, I made so I mean, I mean, I made seventy, I made seventy eight thousand dollars that year doing web writing um, uh, on a contract basis. That good gonna, for yeah, some of the fucking shitload of money. Message right? <laughs> in fine um, art, straight out of school. And then yeah, and then the job offer from Ubisoft was for thirty eight thousand five hundred or something like that. These so are, it was like yeah, it was a massive pay cut. Wow. Um, uh, and yeah, I was like, I pushed back really hard to get them to bring the numbers up. And I was like, oh God, I don't know if I can afford to live on under $40,000 a year. And like, what happens if I move out there? And like, in right. you know, in two months, I'm just like, my credit cards are maxed out and I can't da 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 So yeah, that was pretty stressful. Like it's one thing to take a low paying job. It's another thing to like move across the country to, to into a different culture where you don't know anybody and take a, a really low paying job. Um, there's this cute girl who wants to relocate me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they had that going in their favor. And then, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it ended up working out like... Um, how'd you, yeah, how'd you make the decision? I mean... I just said, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just because they're like, I want to work on video games. This seems really cool. It, yeah, I mean, it seemed like... And they, did they tell you what the game was at that point? No, nope. Nope, Still I not. didn't find out what the game was until after I got there. Wow. So yeah. you could have been like, showed up and like, okay, could have been, on Donald, been Donald, Donald Duck 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had, because I remember when I came back and I went and talked to my friend Jason about it and we like started sniffing around into Ubisoft and we'd known already about the Red Storm thing and yeah. we were like, okay, like they want people like, with unreal experience and they're talking about, like they told me it was like an action adventure yeah. spy kind of techno thing. Um, and I was like, okay, well maybe it's like, and I was like, I was literally thinking, okay, maybe it's kind of like, like a modern day thief. Like maybe it's like a Tom Clancy's thief or something like, and that's, you know, that's what we, from the information that we were able to put together, that's what me and my, my buddy Jason were like, yeah, I mean, best case scenario, it could be that, that'd be amazing. Right. Right. Um, and it, and I was absolutely, I didn't know it was on Xbox. I don't think so. Like I had never even considered the idea that it might be a console game. Like, yeah, I had no sure. fucking clue, right? So it's like, I'd never, literally never held a dual analog in my life, right? <laughs> wow. So like, yeah. I, I showed up there and like, I saw the game and I was like, holy shit, it looks really good, right? Um, like, I saw their prototypes and stuff, uh, but I was like, it's a third person game? I don't think I'd ever played a third person game. Uh, maybe I had, maybe I'd played like, uh, like a couple levels of, of Hitman or something. So mm -hmm. like, I had an idea of the third person thing, but like, to me, a third-person game was uh, uh, was like Tomb Raider or, or yeah. Metal Gear or something like, but early ones like pre pre Metal Gear Solid, like the 
mm-hmm. um, or or like the you know Tomb Raider jumping climbing puzzly kind of stuff. And I right. was just like, oh boy, it's a third person game. That sucks. Third person games are lame. They're for kids, right? Um, and I'd never held a dual analog. I didn't even know what to do, right? Um, so I was definitely in over my head, but like, but very quickly you could see like, okay, there's a lot of cool player tools here, and like a lot of you know, and I you know I, I'm pretty intimately familiar with Thief and and System Shock and Deus Ex and all of these games and they're talking about the same kind of stuff and Rainbow Six like I love I love all of the games that are like that this game around here, yeah. yeah so it's like I wish it wasn't third person but like we'll find a way to make it work <laughs> are you, you think like now like it should have been a third person game oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah. because um I think the situational awareness is really important um mm-hmm. uh uh, also, because of all the climbing that you do and the environmental interaction, I think it's you just can't do that stuff as nearly as well in first person. Like, it sure. doesn't work. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's funny actually. If I think about it, my uh, I played Splinter Cell, and up to that point, I, you, the way you talk about the split between first and third person, I just never thought about it this way. Right. But um, because I'm pretty sure at that point, that may have been the first third person game I had ever played. Right. right. Because, yeah, I don't know why. I mean, just Tomb Raider just seemed kind of weird to me. Yeah. Um, like, the graphics were so polygonal that yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. like, it did not connect with me at all. And so, but I played a lot of the, you know, the first-person games. Um, and I got, I basically got stuck in one of the early levels of Spinner Cell. Just no idea what, I remember I did the, the tutorial. I remember something like going through an apartment in a fire. And then I ended up in an alley and I just had no idea what to do. I'm like, okay, I'm in the that's, alley. That's I'm my re- level, and I know where you were stuck. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up later, and I figured I had to, like, go up a drain pipe and, like... Take a like, wire? Uh, no, no, go oh. on a ledge. Okay. Like, like maybe the bottom of a fire escape, where right. you're going, like, your arms like that. Uh, mm-hmm. We're on radio here. I'm, I'm, saying, yeah. I'm saying you're holding on the bottom of a fire escape, like, hand over hand, trying to go right. horizontally. And um, um, I didn't know that was a verb. Yeah. I guess. Like I just mm-hmm. didn't even know that was possible, so I was just like, I have no what to, idea what to do, and that was that's it. Where you, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Like, and it was, but yeah. I think that's because, like, at, up to that point, I only played first-person games, so I didn't think of interacting. Yeah. To me, like, the environments were only like, like two-dimensional space. Yeah, basically, yep. like, like you should be able to walk everywhere or maybe climb a ladder. Yeah, right. Like that's it. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know. Like we like we made obviously so many mistakes on those games. Like we had no idea, we had no idea how to make games. We had no idea how to think like players encountering the games for the first time. Like like even if you knew what all the verbs were and even if you were fluent in them, the game was the the original Splinter Cell was just punishingly difficult. Like right. I remember towards you know beta, like some of the first times I'd played other people's maps, right. Mm-hmm. Um, extensively like we'd play a little bit each other's maps and share them around and test little parts or whatever but like the first time i ever sat down to like play someone's map from beginning to end that i'd only ever seen a few rooms of right and like you know i'm i I can do anything in the game like i'm totally fluent on the controls i play yeah you know hours a day every day for a year and a half and i I couldn't get through it and it's (laughs) like i can't i can't finish your level like I sit here for four hours trying to play your level and I can't ever get past this room. I just What was the typical problem? It's just too hard. Like too many AI, like too too much like design trying to beat the player. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, too many cryptic solutions to things that were like 
Like we gotta make sure we show off this feature. So you have to have this thing here and like a whole bunch of really like punishing gating around it so that if you don't do it exactly the right way, like, so just like, I mean, just frankly, just bad design. Like we just right. didn't, we just didn't know how to do it right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Like how you can only make that game so good, right? Like how cool is it to be, have been at the point where you guys were trying to figure out about, you didn't have a blueprint to follow. Yeah. We didn't right? have a blueprint and we didn't, you know, there was also like on the original Splinter Cell team, there was definitely like a, there was definitely a, a, a divide. Really? In opinion between what the game was supposed to be. Like there were okay. Tell me more about that. Whole Sounds interesting. Faction of people who felt that the game was supposed to be thief. Okay. Um, very open, like you can come at the you know, the levels would just be open levels and you could come from any direction and use whatever tools you had to complete your objective however you wanted. Did you and identify with them? I was I was on that fa in that yeah. faction for sure. Okay. And then the other faction was we're trying to make a Metal Gear killer. It's a story. You go from room to room to room in a line through the level, and like we show you all these cool features, and you get you all, to these do all these pieces. cool set pieces. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know we. Well, that's a dynamic that still is still with us, really. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, um, and yeah, those two factions like just collided really hard all the time. Like a lot of people who left the company like after that game, and a lot of people who never made another Splinter Cell game. It was just a lot of hmm. it was it was a really really tough development interesting so that's um that's one that's an interesting thing about game development is that there's difference of opinions but there's also like just the sense of like team cohesion is all about getting people to be philosophically aligned mm -hmm. and like sometimes that just means like you gotta get you gotta some people are just not right for the pro like the project could go either way mm -hmm. right it's just you gotta pick one of those paths yeah. and like and everybody be has aware to the same direction yeah. right like this is the type of game we're making yeah therefore you know all the little decisions you make have to go towards one of these poles and like we're not making it i'm not making a value judgment of like you know set piece games are wrong right, right? like it's just this game is this kind of game and there's another game that's another kind of game and like this right. game is this kind like yeah. yeah and we just never could get we never got there we never got there as a team, never. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so that really hurt, I think, the game. And, and I think long-term it hurt the brand. I think it was hard. Um, long-term it hurt the brand? Like, how so? I think, oh, I think that... Because, um, I mean, Star Wars was, I mean, at the time, it was a big success, right? So I, I think it's always... I think there's always been, like even in the player community, I think there have always been kind of two factions of people. There's the faction of people who are really like, um, um, there's, a, there's a right way to play the game. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, a fa I shouldn't use factions to apply to players, but there's players who sure. think that there's a right way to play the game. And that's fine. It's fine that you think that. Um, and then there are players that like, like want the game to just be more fluid and fun and they're able to play it in different kinds of ways. Yeah. And I think that, you know, well, you know, I um, could I could even see that from the outside a little bit. Like, um, we, you know, so with my limited experience of Splinter Cell, and also just kind of like the way the game was marketed, it looked sort of like a set piece game. Right. Like it, there wasn't anything like communicating to me like, by the way, if you like the thief style games, this is a game for you. Like I right. didn't, I never saw that. Right. And then I I went to maybe some of your talks about you know Splinter Cell, and you know you'd have give these examples of, oh, this guy did this thing with a sticky mind or whatever it was. Right. And like, oh, look at this really cool thing that happened. And I was like, like, 
Splinter Cell is that game? Like, I had right. no idea, like, that yeah. stuff was in the game at all. Like, yeah, it, I mean, it's there. It's just, it's there. It's just, it's, in my opinion, it's very, very inaccessible by how, by how difficult the game is, how, how constraining the game is. Um, you have to be, like, in order to, like, you know, the reason I used that example with the sticky mine in that video that I had years ago, it's like, you have to be so fucking incredibly good at the game to be able to do that. Right. Um, that it's like, yeah, it's, it's just inaccessible, right? Um, which is unfortunate because that's the, that's the beautiful, in my mind, that's the beautiful stuff in the game and mm. I can do it. Right? right. But like, <laughs> I'm not a good bar for my audience. Right. Um, right. If you're as good at the game as the guy who created it, <laughs> you can, you'll also you'll enjoy it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's been part of the, the difficult thing is like, you know, getting the, yeah, it's something to message. Like, if I felt like that stuff was in there, I would have probably stuck with the game longer, like, try to figure out what right. this was in here, you yeah. know. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like it was communicating to me that there was there was all of this extra stuff I could do. Whereas with <laughs> Deus Ex, had, like, to me, the opposite problem is, like, right. okay, here's a whole bunch of stuff. Obviously, right. I can play a different way, the game a bunch of different ways, but none of these things seem to work, right? right? right. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, fine, whatever, <laughs> moving on. 57 um, broken choices. <laughs> yeah. So, um, interesting. All right. Well, we're, so you joined the team and like right fresh off the boat, you were like, okay, you're a level designer. Yep. Is that essentially what it was? Yep. And what, 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 like what levels did you start making? I started making that first level. That, that you never got past. Actually, okay. I, no, the first level I started making, we started making the middle levels of the game first. Uh -huh. The first level I started making, um, was a level that never shipped. Um, okay. It was a big, like, nickel smelting plant in, like, the Kola Peninsula in northern Russia. And a part of it shipped later as part of a DLC thing. But, like, whatever. I mean, it was it was grossly overscoped. It was huge. It was, like, totally open. Like, you could go at it from any direction. You could get lost in it for hours. Like, um, it was mostly empty because we couldn't have that many AI. Like, it was just not sure. a good level design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were, I think there were six level designers. Mm -hmm. There were 12 levels that we had to build or something like that. And we were all working on those sort of middle levels. Okay. And, Did each um, person have like one level? Each person basically? had. Well, the plan was that each level designer would have two levels. Right. But we would start by building the middle ones first. Yep. Then okay. we would, once we had them figured out, we would start by building the first ones and the last ones. Okay. Um, so the. And even though my level was really badly broken um, and not very good, it was still the level that ended up getting taken to the first E3. Or right. like a part of it was the level that got taken to the first E3, mm -hmm. um, and and mostly that's just because I just I just just work more hours. Like I just mm -hmm. I just worked like 60, 70 hours a week. Were you just time. like so pumped to be doing yeah. your job? I mean, but it's partly that, but it's also like I have always had like a a capacity to sit at a level editor for like twenty hours without even getting up to pee. Like. There are times when I almost peed my pants because, like, my, I'm just like so focused on the work, and I'm like doing this, and crossing my legs, and don't even realize it. And then I'm like, "Oh man, I'm like, I really have to, I can't get out of my chair because I don't want to pee my pants while I'm trying to go to the bathroom." Like, you need the bladder, um, buddy. Yeah, yeah, just just keep going. Um, so, uh, yeah, I could just focus on levels for a very, very, very long period of time. There were times working on, you know, on my own real levels that I'd be awake until five, six, seven sure. o'clock in the morning. Like, oh man, I have to get up for work in half an hour. Like, fuck, what did right. I do? <laughs> um, 
Did you worry? Did you do you remember like just hit you hit the ground running when you got there? Like there wasn't. Yeah, uh, I hit the ground running and it, and it was great. Like it was. Did they you know, did they have working levels like at that point or there was were, it, there were a couple like prototypes levels that got chucked, but like I was literally me and the lead level designer were the first two to really start working on levels that would ship. Right. And uh, yeah, so we started on the middle ones and uh, and then. After, you know, my level went to E3 and everybody was really happy with my levels, even though, like I said, my level was really terrible. Um, did, did you think it was terrible at the time? No, no. I thought it was the best level ever made. I, mean, <laughs> I, was, right. I, was, I was blind. Like, I just okay. wasn't. How uh, did you get to discover that it was terrible? I probably didn't even discover it until a couple years later. But it was, it didn't ship, right? It didn't ship. No, well, that, that's a long story. So, uh, okay. after, so... That level went to E3, or a chunk of it did, and then that was just a huge amount. Like, the excitement for the game after E3 was just unbelievable, and Ubisoft was super excited, and there was, like, deals being made with Microsoft, and everything was going to be awesome. This is E3 2001? Is that it? 2001 or 2000... Yeah, it must have been 2001. No. No, it must have been 2002. Okay. Yeah. Um, And, uh... And, um... And then I started, and then I took the first level. I took the, I started working on the first level. So yeah. they're like, okay, Clint's level's awesome and he's good, blah, blah, blah. He should be working on the first level. And yeah, it's also not very good um, for different reasons. There's parts of it are really good. But then, like, part of that level also became the level that shipped in the OXM, like, demo disc mm-hmm. for Xbox Magazine. Back when we put demos on discs yep, in yep, magazines. Yep. <laughs> um, and that got a lot of hype. Actually, that part of the level is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it's got a lot of player freedom in a lot of ways, even though it's very small. It's like a five-room police precinct or something. Like there's a mm. there's a lot of different you know, well a lot of different tools you can use and some fun stuff. Um, and the graphics were amazing. It blew sure. people's minds, right? Yeah. And so, but you know, while we're working on the back, so so I've switched over to working on the first level of the game. So now I'm working on two levels. Um, and all of the LDs are working on two levels and we're all really fucking buried. Um, uh, we had to fire one of the LDs, so that cut down our staff. That was Mm -hmm. hard. Um, the game designer was just too frustrated with the, the factional politics and, and quit. Uh, Uh, The lead lead game designer? The lead game designer quit. Okay. Um, to like stop making games and go to school. Wow. So, uh, they asked me to be the game designer. And then at beta, the lead writer, the writer quit mm-hmm. um, to go make movies. And so they asked me to take over. I mean, the script was done. Right. Done. The script was written and largely recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still a bunch, there was still a bunch of emails that needed to be written and a bunch of like, you know, things that needed to be added and changed and whatever. So I took over the script um, and I'd worked really closely with them on different levels and different ideas and all that kind of stuff. So like I, I was very intimately familiar with the script and then, um, so I took that over too. And then post beta, we're like realizing, okay, we've lost a level designer. Like some of these levels aren't coming together. Some of them are bad. Some of them need to have massive cuts and changes made. Like the art team is saying they can only do this much. Like, what are we going to cut? Blah, 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 blah. And then it was like, okay, we're cutting. So this is what happened with my level. We had those middle levels. We knew we were cutting this level and this level and this level. And my level was in the middle. Mm -hmm. And we have to cut one more level. And it's either this level over here, like near the beginning of the game, or yours. 
And and you had to cut levels because you guys just ran out of time. time to do them. Yeah. We didn't have time to do them. And and you know the ones we we knew we were cutting were we were cutting them because they were bad and we knew yeah. they were bad and you know whatever. Yeah. Um, but the the other two were like like they're also not very good. But more importantly, we don't have time. Yeah. So like we need to cut one more level, and it should be one of these two. These are the ones we think aren't very good. And uh, so I and it was kind of my decision. Um, as the lead game designer and writer and yeah. designer. And I was like, okay, if I, and part of the decision was like, I either cut my own level <laughs> right. um, and then I have to splice the script once in order to cover this gap mm-hmm. where four levels just disappear out of the story and like all the story that goes with it. But it's like one patch job to a yeah. cinematic. Um, or I have to cut a level over here and then I have two patch jobs that I have to do and and also at the time it was like again a lot of factual politics and it was like if if and we we recently fired a level designer and like things were really shaky and I was like it's gonna just be better for the morale of this team if yeah, I sure. cut, if I cut my own level than yeah. cut that yeah. guy's level sure um, and so and so it was the it was the smarter thing to do from a production point of view it was also the smarter thing to do from a team cohesion point of view. Yeah. Um, so I cut my own level. Um, and then, but yeah. At the end of the time, you still thought it was a good level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know why I thought it was a good level. Yeah. I, just, I was just too close to it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I did, and, and then I guess, so, and so I don't know how far we want to jump ahead, but then when I went to work on Chaos Theory, I went on as the lead level designer and, and script writer. And I think having to oversee all of the levels mm-hmm. um, and work very closely with all of the level designers on all of their levels, even though maybe I never really thought it, there wasn't a moment where I realized that level was bad, but mm-hmm. like having to make lots of cuts and lots of changes and right. like work with level designers, like smarten up. Like this isn't, this part isn't fun. It isn't good. It's not yeah. working. Like your idea was interesting. We tried it, but we're changing it. Like we have to work together to make it awesome. Um, and I think, you know, again, I didn't cut that dude's level. I cut my own level. Like yeah. that, that level design team trusted me. Yep. Um, and so I think. Um, what were the lessons you were learning during this period? Like what what makes it a good level? Like what? Um, what did you learn? Um, I think that we'd learned what the what the interesting mechanics and challenges and you know. Um, uh, challenges and mechanics are that that made the game feel good and we we'd learned to really think them through and think about the player experience and there were a few of us or at least three of us i think from the original splinter who were on the level design team in in chaos theory um and we were like on the original splinter cell a level design document was like 65 pages long yeah and there was no information in it yeah, about sure. what the actual level was on chaos theory there were each level des- level design document had like some number of areas. Usually, it was like between like eight to twelve or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like I just rigidly enforced like every single area is one page in a document. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. So the level design document was like like a, a, a topology diagram of the right. level, mm-hmm. um, and then like a page that describes all the objectives that you need to do, and the, like the story parts. Like one page that describes the 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 level's place in the story mm-hmm. and then one page for each of those 12 
environments with a with a verbal description of like it's the engine room of the ship like there's a gas leak so you can't use your gun mm -hmm. and so and there's loud generators and as you you know so it covers up the sounds of your footsteps and like or whatever the thing was and and then we would prototype these things and like make sure they were fun and test them and if they weren't fun we would just fucking change them like and we get everybody to play them and give feedback and and it just worked much and and we were just much more like we were much more of a team in the mm -hmm. sense it was like you know the level designer would would rough the thing in and we'd play it but it wasn't like keep working on it until it's good it's like rough it in and we'll play it and then it's not like it's not like what your vision is for this room that you're going to magically deliver to us 18 months from now yep. it's like we played it doesn't work this and this and this are why it don't work like right. fix those things i don't i'm not telling you what how to fix it i'm telling you to fix it right, right. like this and this and this don't work so you built and, a process yeah we basically. built a process yeah. yeah and and i think frankly i think all the level designers were really happy to have one because mm -hmm. it's like hey look like like I build a thing, I have this idea in my head and I build it and it's not right. And then people tell me it's not right and they tell me what's wrong and yeah. then I fix it and, and look, That's now fun. it now it's fun. Yeah, and now good. other people play it and it's fun. Yeah. Like I should listen to these people. And then hey, when I tell them that I think this and this and this aren't fun, they go and change it and then it's fun. Yeah. So like we're working together to make this thing fun and interesting, right? Yeah. So I think it worked very well. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. we still ran up against the limits of things that are maybe inherently not that fun about the the whole yeah. game, but like, yeah. So, but backing up to when you became the lead designer for Splinter Cell, um, so at that point, was there time, or were you able, because there was probably some stuff about the way the game worked mechanically or whatever, right? That yeah. you wanted to change. Like, was it was that? something that you started doing at that point or there wasn't like i said the, the lead designer left at alpha okay so, so, it was so just, it a was lot not... of stuff was locked in yeah it was more honestly at that point it was more of a title there was some tuning work and stuff that i needed to do on some of the weapons and like you know how many of this item do you have in this level and like what's the spacing of these pickups for this and that or whatever and that kind of stuff but um <clears throat> um yeah, for the most part, the, the game design was done. There was a lot of... And game design overlapped a lot with level design, like, you know, like a lot of stuff, you know, like using retinal scanners and like how we force people to use retinal scanners. It was all... Yeah, there was a game design there and there's a bunch of a bunch of stuff, but a lot of everything was just being handled in script, so it was really just like... There was a lot of just like, just fucking make it work. Like, however it fucking works is what the design is <laughs> like. Like, yeah, it was pretty it was pretty amateur hour in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh. Is it... So I guess we're getting now to the release of Splinter Cell. What, what did you think of the game before it came out? Did you um, think you'd made a game? Like, yeah, it was... I thought the game was, um, was way too hard. I thought it was just really, really frustratingly difficult and punishing. And I thought that... Um, Had you done stuff to try to fix that while you could? Or yeah, is it I just mean, too hard of a problem? We we tried. Um, but even then, like, you know, even then we didn't have good process in place for me giving that feedback to the other level designers in a way that was useful to them. And when people would give that feedback to me, I couldn't hear it because I was so, you know, again, mm -hmm. those processes that we had on chaos theory where there was much more 
dialogue and playing at people's levels and giving feedback and finding ways to make stuff the best it could be that those processes just didn't exist. So like, yeah, I knew it was hard and punishing and I would tell people like, I, I never, I played your level for four hours today and I never managed to get through this room. Like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Or every time I do this, I get game over. And then the guy would just say, yeah, yeah I know I've got to fix that. Yeah. Right. And it was really like, there was a lot of blocking each other's like criticism. And again, not because people were bad or because they didn't want the game to be good, just because it's just very amateur and we'd just been, just had bad processes and bad habits. Yeah. Didn't, didn't know what we were trying to solve for. Yeah. You just, you know, the, the level designers were not finding out what, how their, how their level looked to someone new. Right. Yeah. Like the real not players, the actual yeah. players of the yeah. game. Did you have some sort of like non, like not testing for, not testing for, for bugs, bugs, but, like, but yeah. testing for, fun? I don't, I don't even know if we did to tell the At truth. Um, we must've, we must've, I just don't, yeah. I just don't remember. Yeah. Um, so what, what did you think was going to happen when you released the game? Um, I thought that the game was, I thought, I think I thought that what was going to happen, I think was what ended up happening. The game, the game reviewed very, very well, mm-hmm. sold like gangbusters. It was Ubisoft's highest selling game by, by a wide margin ever. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of critical acclaim, lots of sales, like lots of visibility. Um, but you know, 75% of players not getting past the fifth room in the first level. And it's like, shit, (laughs) like that's a fucking serious disaster. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's not cool. Um, and then, yeah, I think it just made it, made it very hard. How did you find that out at that time? I don't know. I'm I'm not. Like, I mean, I, I know that's not like a real there, number, yeah. but like, like what, where were you getting your feedback from? Because at um, least then you now had actual feedback about the game. Well, I mean, you know, again, not a lot of process in place at the time. We did, there were reports where we did start to see like completion reports and stuff like that, that we would get like mm-hmm. months later, finding out that really no one, no one was getting very far. Um, you know, obviously at that time you'd spend a lot of time on forums after your game ships yep. and reading around and seeing, and yeah, just like, I, and I don't, I don't remember the numbers are exactly, but like, you know, realizing how many people on the forums were just getting blocked by like, like really obvious, obvious shit, like in literally five rooms into the first level of the game. It's like, yeah, that's, that's my fault. Like people aren't, people aren't getting out of that house across the street because like, the zip line that they have to get to from here is like super awkward and you can't really get to it. And it's in, practically invisible against the night sky. Like how, how, and there's yeah. no, how in the world are you supposed to know that it's there? Yeah. People have told me this a whole bunch of times. I've done everything I could to make it obvious, except like, except make it obvious. <laughs> like, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Wow. yeah. I mean, probably, probably thousands of people like, were blocked by a fucking zip line yeah. off a balcony somewhere. Yeah. So, huh. So you're in a strange position of releasing your first game, which was critically 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 acclaimed and commercially successful, which is like great. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like best, that's, that's the idea. dream, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, uh, but you were not. You were not happy. Yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, first of all, were so, you were you happy? Like, just as a person at that point. 